right, all right. So once again, thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome you all here and all those also listening on our podcast channel. Tonight, we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 8. If you use your iPhone or your iPad or whatever, that is fine too. That's actually how I do most of my Bible readings. So Romans chapter 8, and we're going to start at verse 18. All right, Romans 8, 18. If you don't have your Bibles with you, that's okay. Everything I read is going to be, uh, all the Bible verses are going to be on the screen right behind me. So this is what it says, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. This is Paul talking. He says, I consider, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, for Paul to start out this way means he wants to make two things, two things abundantly clear. Number one, he knows that we all experience suffering. We simply do, right? He knows it. This is not new. And Paul's saying that he understands this as much as anyone. And this includes all followers of Jesus Christ, that through our lives we will periodically experience hardship. He's saying, I get it, I know it, I've experienced it too. So he's acknowledging right out of the gate, it exists. This, this is what then leads us into number two, and this is what he really wants us to focus on. Number two, the sufferings that we experience, they are small, and they are worth it when compared to what we get through Jesus Christ. Right through the glory received, salvation, and what we'll experiencing in heaven. So he's saying that, yes, while we get it, we will have trouble. That's absolutely true. But do not ever, ever give up. Do not ever live hope. Because even though what you experience now is difficult, what you will get through Jesus Christ, specifically in heaven, will be more, more than worth it. Right? And here's what's interesting. This is the other reason he's saying this. It's not only important for you, but it's also important for other people around you. Right? Specifically those people who see what you're going through, right? They then use that information to decide for themselves if Jesus is worth their time, right? Now, this is probably the most critical part to take from what he's talking about. No matter what you go through, good and bad, if people know or perceive that you're a Christian, everything you do is a testament to Jesus Christ, good or bad. And that's kind of a heavy-duty thought when you think about it. Right? It is, right? They watch you, they observe you, they see how you hold it together, they see how you can stay focused, and they can also see you lose it. Right? They can see you abandon everything. They can see you twist the words of Jesus Christ. They can see you take pieces of what Jesus said, the stuff that suits you. They see you ignore something. They can see you either be a really good example of Jesus Christ or a poor example, right? And then, here's the key, they use that information on whether Jesus Christ is worth their time, right? So again, Paul is saying this is important not only for our success to understand that any suffering, suffering we go through is worth it in the big picture, but he's also saying people watch us and are trying to decide for themselves if they could or should trust Jesus Christ during their hard times, right? And that's, that's big, that's profound, and that's what he's saying. Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page, let's look briefly at what we call the Great Commission. And I want to do this, first off, because Jesus is the one that tells us to do it, right? So anything he says is important. We need to know, right? I had a really good conversation with someone at work. They're like, man, the Bible's so big, and all this, and all this, and what about Revelation? I'm like, oh, Bruce, slow down. Slow down, you're making me dizzy. First, what did Jesus say? Get that down. Everything else is fine. Get that first. Let's just look at what he said. 
And that's why I like to do this. Because um, if we look closely at Jesus' words, what he said in the Great Commission, he's also telling us in these words why we can trust him, why we can do what he's sending us out to do, right? Even during hard times. So this is from Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It says, Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded with you, commanded to, commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So I want to zero in on a few specific things Jesus said. First off, he says, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him, right? Now that means no creature in heaven, God the Father, the angels, anything, or here on earth, kings, queens, governments, dictators, whatever, no one has more authority. The Father in heaven gave him all authority, put him in charge, right? And, and that's what gives him the ability to make this command. And notice the command that he gives, it isn't conditional. This is the key. Test me on this. Look closely at his words. There's no clause in there, there's no asterisk that says, well, if it gets kind of hard... There isn't even a, what about if there's a natural disaster, right? What if there's a famine? There isn't, a thinly, there isn't even a thinly veiled suggestion that, or hint that we're to do anything but go and make disciples of all nations at all times in all places. And we've been given this command by the one who's been given all authority to give it, right? So he says go. In good times and in bad, go. In times of wealth and plenty, go. In times of famine and in drought, go and make disciples. When you're treated well, go. When you're persecuted, go. So in Matthew 28, he just says flat out, go, go, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. Right? And, and Paul, who is probably the world's greatest uh, evangelist, um, he speaks from experience because he went out. He constantly traveled around. He says, from experience, I know this. I was tortured. I was beat. All this stuff. I live that command that Jesus gave. And I can tell you, everything I went through was worth it. It pales into comparison with what we get through Jesus Christ. So go. Let's go a little further now into Romans 8. And we're going to see, some, see Paul sh share some additional information to help us continue through hardships. And what he's going to tell us, this is cool, what he's going to tell us is indicative of how much the world needs us to share the gospel, okay? How much the world wants us to share the gospel. Romans uh, 8, verses 19 to 20. He says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So really what Paul is describing here is the world knows how damaging sin is. It, it, we know that, right? Whether the world wants to admit it or not, we all know sin is bad. We all know sin is not leading us in a better direction, right? We know that. The world knows sin is wrong, and the accumulation of sin over time, again, is not bringing us to a better place. If anything, I think we can pretty much admit that over time, things are maybe getting worse, or at least have a lot of fear for the future. I mean, imagine, 
Uh, imagine something's going to happen bad, either through war, disease, famine, drought, and now I'm reading about the dangers of artificial intelligence. Great, throw that one on there. How do I deal with that? The point is the world is not getting more sustainable. Here's an example. Each year we keep adding more and more people to the earth, and we last year couldn't feed the people we already had. All right? Paul's point is you don't have to be a rocket science to see the writing on the wall to see the dangers that we all put ourselves in, right? So he says the world waits, waits for God's children to be revealed so they can bring hope, real hope. And he says creation, creation was subjected to frustration, right? In the hope, in his words, that it's going to be liberated from bondage and brought into the freedom of God's children. So in today's terms, what that means is God knows we made our bed, so he's going to let us lie in it for a while. The point being, he wants us to learn. He wants us to really learn the ex- about the sin that we brought in this world. And we're going to have to experience anger, frustration, hate, sickness, lust, dishonesty, idols, all that stuff. Remember, we brought it into the world. And we're the ones that, what, keep doing it over and over and over. And I've said this before. I know this sounds kind of funny and tragic it's at the same rate. Remember, we're the species that had to be getting rules, were given laws, written in stone. And one of those says, stop killing each other. And do we do a good job of that today? No. And And so God says part of the plan is to live in the world that we messed up. So hopefully it's going to drive us to want to change. So we're going to learn. Now, I really like the way Paul describes this situation in verse 22, and he says, we know the whole creation, just kind of picture this in mind, we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Right? The whole earth experiences pain as in childbirth. And it's doing this because of the weight of sin. It happens today. And the goal was always to drive us to see the light, to want us to learn, to see our sinful ways and to turn to Jesus Christ. Now, it's an interesting contrast to all the problems, all the bummer stuff that we just talked about, right? I want, to, we want, I want to share a Bible verse from Isaiah chapter 11. And this chapter really, really paints a good visual on how things will be in the future when God makes things right. Okay, it's Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. You've probably heard this before. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play. This is, drives me crazy. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I want you to picture this. The world it was just described it sounds great, but also we got to be honest. If, if you're being honest, it's a little weird. And it's supposed to sound weird. It should sound weird for a world exist where a child can put its hand into a poisonous snake den and nobody freaks out. Right? And the reason that sounds crazy is because that is crazy in this world. Many snakes are dangerous. You know why we have a word for poisonous? Because things are poisonous. They can kill you. You know why we don't have a term for warm hugs from king cobras? They don't do that. It doesn't exist. Our language reflects our world around us. That's why we have a viper's den. That's why it's poisonous, right? 
the reality that Isaiah is describing does not exist on this earth. Not yet. Here's the kicker. This is the world that God wants. This is the world that God intends. That's how it should be and that's how it will be in the future. God wants the world to groan, as in the pains of childbirth, to desire, to want that. He's not going to force it on anybody. And if we long for that type of world, then maybe we'll start to look inward. We'll want to change. And then we'll want to help others change too. And this is what Paul means when he says the world waits for the children of God to be revealed. The world will one day realize that Jesus Christ is the way. They'll want to learn and follow him. Let's keep moving on Romans chapter 8. Let's go to verses 23 and 25. He says, Not only so, but we ourselves who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So actually in these couple of verses, Paul is directly speaking to people who already believe in Jesus Christ. But he's also noting, he's noting that while it's a huge blessing to belong to Jesus Christ, we have not, let's be honest, and you can admit this if you think about it, we have not experienced the full benefit of that yet, have we? Because we're still on a sinful earth. We're not in heaven with him, right? We still, you can, you'll be, you can be a follower of Jesus Christ and you can still get the flu. Did you know that? You can be a follower of Jesus Christ and you can still get sick. You can lose your job, you, whatever. Life happens, okay? All the things in, that are natural to human life. But this is what he means when he says the redemption of our bodies and we eagerly wait for adoption into sonship. Once we come to believe in Jesus Christ, that's awesome, that's the first part. It's only the first part. The second step or the completion of that is when we will rise at the end and be in heaven with him forever. That's what he means when he describes about, talks about the redemption of our bodies. The reason that we persist, the reason we remain strong in this world, even during hard times, is because we're no, we know we're saved and that this is not the end. But this life is not all there is. We will rise again. We will live with God forever in heaven. That's why we have hope. And further, Paul says, the reason we have hope, it's kind of redundant, the reason we have hope is because we don't actually possess this yet. He says, who hopes for something you already have? No one, right? That's why we hope for it. We trust in God, we have faith in salvation through Jesus Christ, and this is what drives us on to remain true and to remain focused. Now, Paul also, along those same lines, along those same lines, Paul stated, he also recognizes, again, throughout our life, we're going to have difficulty. We've said that. We can all agree on that. But when we experience those things, here's the other side of it, the other truth of it. Sometimes we know exactly what to pray for, right? Sometimes, if you're honest with yourself, you don't know. Things are just a mess, and you're grabbing at straws. Sometimes it feels like everything is just falling apart, and you don't know where to start in prayer. You don't know what to ask for. And in those times... God is there for us as well. This is really cool. Uh, verses 26 and 27. He says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. Right? Everyone's in a moment, can we admit that? But the Spirit himself intercedes through us, for us through wordless groans. And he searches, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So God is there to, guard, to guide our prayers. 
Right? Again, we see problems, and many times we think we have a solution. We're like, hey, God, this is it. I already nailed it for you. Just do this, and all, all's well. Right? Which is totally fine. But there are times, if you're honest, you don't know exactly what to pray for. You're just like, Ugh. all right? We just pray. That's what I've done. Just, God, do your work. You know what I got. Do your thing. I put it in your hands. Your plan is better than mine. So all I pray for today is just your will be done. Can anyone relate to that? Now, what's cool about what Paul is saying is that God can see directly into our hearts. He can feel our pain. He can feel our groans. Even if we don't, you know, come out with a nice PowerPoint presentation. Okay, this, this, and that. He sees into us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And in those cases, the Holy Spirit can guide our prayers. The Holy Spirit can be that bridge between us and him. And that's really a beautiful message. That's a cool thing that he's talking about. It's comforting to know that God knows us, even when we don't know exactly what to pray for. Let's continue into verses 28 and 30. And we know that in all things, this is again really good stuff, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that, that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There's a ton in here, so we just need to unpack it bit by bit. Let's talk about verse 28 first, where he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All right, so God works for those who love him. He works for the good. Now, just so we understand this, God works for our greater good. That does not mean, and Pastor Craig can totally admit this, tell you this, a lot of other people can, that does mean, doesn't mean God will answer every prayer the way you think he should. It just doesn't happen. Sometimes the best thing for him is not to answer the prayer as we ask, that, that we ask for, right? The answer is usually yes, no, or wait, right? Sometimes God wants to build us up and make us stronger. And the answer is not to immediately pluck us out of that situation. Sometimes he will leave us in that stressful situation to build us up. Sometimes he wants us to have more faith and trust, and since Paul, so this is what's cool, since Paul's writing this, let's talk about a very real instance this happened to Paul. This is a biggie. This is an instance where, instance where God did not give him what he asked for. Remember, this is the dude that wrote most of our New Testament. All right, since 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That is heavy-duty discipleship right there. That is like ninja Michael Jordan level discipleship. For instance, for starters, what Paul says is he was given a thorn in his flesh. It tells us it's a messenger of Satan. That means it was a demon. And it was sent to him to keep him from being conceited, which means to tamp down his ego. God allowed that to happen 
for a while. And I want you to think, think about that for a moment. Do you think Paul was happy about it when that happened? No. Do you think he said, bring it on, I'm Paul? No. Paul says, he tells us three times, three times he pleaded with the Lord. He didn't ask. A grown man pleaded. What do people plead for? They plead for their life. They plead, beg for forgiveness, right? The grown man pleaded with God three times. And what was God's answer three times? No. No. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. In the back of my mind, I'm like, no. I don't want that. So God left Paul in a weak, powerless state to teach him humility. And God will do that to us sometimes, to build us up. As much as we may not like to admit that, as much as like a lot of church likes, always like to preach the, power, the, great, the, the soft, easy stuff, this is the hard stuff. This is what makes you resilient. This is what makes you a great disciple. This is what makes the devil go, oh no, they're here too. Now we got our work cut out for us. See, God is in the business of saving people and creating disciples. Remember, when you, become, when you come to believe in Jesus Christ, you're baptized, that's fabulous. That is an awesome day. But that's not the end. That's step one. Nowhere in the, in the New Testament will you find the words, just baptize and then you're done. Take a day off. You're done. Retirement, punch your card. The Bible actually says the exact opposite. And then gives examples of the disciples getting exactly all of that. They were regularly challenged. They were forced to step out of their comfort zone. Jesus built them up over a three-year period and then sent them out and said, now do the same. Let's move on and let's talk about verses 29 to 30 where Paul talks about predestination. You ever heard that term before? Predestination. It causes a lot of confusion. Um, so we should talk about it. This is what it says, uh, verse 29 and 30. For, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. So again, those two verses can cause confusion, and depending on how you read them or interpret them, and I've heard people interpret them poorly, it can seem unfair. But let me explain, because that is absolutely not true. When Paul says that God does predestine certain people, that is true. He absolutely did that. Before God created the world, he knew we would sin. And he created the world anyway. He knew problems would arise. He knew people would be, would be capable of incredible acts of kindness and also horrible, evil things they could do. And yet he still created the world. He knew we would do things and everything would fall apart. But he also planned for our redemption to help us. He planned for a way back. For example, God chose the nation of Israel, did he not? He chose them. He chose them to receive the Ten Commandments. He chose them to have the temple, the priesthood. And even though he chose them, if you read the Old Testament, they still had to choose him back repeatedly. They still had to follow him, which they didn't always do well. Moses and Abraham, they were chosen but they still had to choose to follow God many times. They were predestined and chosen, but they still had to make their own choice. And sometimes they did good. Sometimes they did not. 
Jesus chose the 12 disciples. He chose Judas, knowing what Judas was going to do. He still chose him. That was all predestined. Each one of the disciples had to choose on their own. So the idea of predestination means God does choose certain people at certain times to play a part in this world. But each of those people have to choose as well. So predestination is a good thing. But if you read it wrong, and some people have done this, well, God chose me to be a Christian, didn't choose my neighbor, so there's no real need for me to worry about that because I'm the one chosen. That is a horrible way to read that. That is not at all what that means. That's not what Paul's saying. God chooses who he chooses to work in this world. Each one of us are then called. That's why Jesus said, go and make disciples. Go make more disciples and more disciples. He wants his followers to play a part in saving this world. Let's move on to verse 31. And I have to tell you, this is one of my favorite Bible verses by far. Each one of us probably has our own favorites or a couple favorites or top five. This is one of mine. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? Remember all that stuff we just said. What do we say in response for that? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a real question. He's not joking around. He's saying, no, who? Tell me. You got nothing. There's nothing. And this is a really big statement that Paul's conveying here. We're going to take this bit by bit. First, we've got to remember everything Paul covered up to this point. At the beginning of the teaching, Paul talked about how normal it was to go through hardship. Everybody does. It's expected, but it's also worth it in the end. He talked about how creation groans under the weight of sin, how the world's full of problems. Yep, we know that. We know that he also wants us to endure all that. We also learned how God allowed a demon to torture, uh, to torment Paul to teach him humility. And so when Paul says in verse 31, what do we say in response to these things? What do we say? He means, how do we respond to all that stuff? He said, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can stand in our way? If, if, here's a good way to think of it, if God is using hard times to change us and make us better, to increase our faith, then what do we have to fear? He's the creator of the universe. He's in control of all things. The other side of this is, that we should learn from this, is simply the word if. If God is for us. And the reason I bring this up, and you may have experienced this, a lot of people think God tells them to do things. And some people are wrong. You look throughout history. Not every person who says God told me to do this was right. Amen? Cult leaders do this all the time. David Koresh told his followers they needed to gather lots and lots of weapons and have hand grenades. And what did they do? They had lots and lots of hand grenades. Jim Jones told his followers that God said they need to drink that Kool-Aid. And it was poisoned with what? Cyanide, I think? So what Paul is doing here, he's used the word if... If God is telling us to do this, if God is for us, meaning part of his plan, not ours, then there's nothing that can stand in his way. Plenty of things can and do stand in our way, but nothing can stand in his way. 
So while this is an amazing statement about God being all-powerful, which is totally true, there's always a little bit of a warning in there, meaning if we don't get ahead, don't get ahead of God. That's an important distinction to make and to have because people will continue to do that from time to time, unfortunately. But now along those same lines in regards to God being all-powerful and no one can stand against us, God, uh, Paul also uses words, he's going to talk about the great extent of God's generosity, and this is really cool. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, we, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is one of those things, I think it's a translation thing, if you were there, it would sound a little smoother. What this means is that if, if, if God was willing to give up his own son, and he did it while we were sinning. Not we had all fixed ourselves and said, hey, I'm totally sorry, we're going to get... While that's happening, he gave up his only son. How much more will he give us the smaller things? Jesus was his prized possession. There was no one higher. If God was willing to pay that crazy high price, if Jesus was willing to pay that crazy high price, how much more, how much easier the smaller stuff would he be willing to give us? That's a good point. His point is God is generous and has demonstrated that he will withhold nothing. Now as we read the next few verses, verses 33 to 37, we're going to see Paul is going to ask a series of questions. And this is kind of the way he talks. He gives a series of questions, gives a partial answer, leads to another question, and then he brings it in at the end with one final big statement. So I want to do and I cut out a few things. Let's just focus on the questions and then we're going to jump to the other stuff. So if you have your Bibles following along, you're going to see what I'm talking about. But these are just the questions here, Romans 8, 33 to 37. This is what he says. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? He's asking some big questions here. Who then is the one that condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall hardship, trouble, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Can any of that do this? In verse 37 is his answer. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So again, what Paul's doing is he's setting up this argument. He's asking all these questions about being guilty of sin, and that's what we are on the one hand, but then also we are redeemed, and he used this word, uses this word conquerors. When I first read that, I mean, that, thing, that sounds kind of weird. Conquerors? How are we conquerors? What he's doing is he's laying everything at Jesus' feet. And what this means is since we've been condemned by God, the Most High Judge, and rightfully due to our sin, right? He's all-powerful. And at the same time, God sent his son to pay for our sins. How could anything lower condemn us? God has the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate judge. Like you have the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court makes a ruling, how can this local magistrate, you know, he is it. And if that's what he does, there's no one has more power. Nothing escapes his eyesight. He's already said, God has already condemned us rightfully. Nothing slipped by. That's his first point. And the next thing leads to Jesus Christ. God gave, has all this authority. He gave it to Jesus Christ. And everything through Jesus Christ means we are saved. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. It's not possible. Now, Jesus also addresses this. This is cool. It's in John chapter 28. John 10, 28. And this is what he says. He's talk, and remember, he's talking about each one of us. This is you. He says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will do what? Snatch them from my hand. And notice his words aren't conditional, like unless 
little asterisk. No, he doesn't need to check with anyone. There's no creature in heaven on earth that has the power to change our status with Jesus Christ. That's why Paul lists these examples in verse 35 of things that cannot do it. Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, swords, any of that? Is that a threat to Jesus Christ? No. And this is where, you know, Paul, after building up all of his cases, all this stuff, out of his question, now he's going to demolish all that stuff. His response in verse 37, No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, conquerors, again, we're not conquerors by our own power, but through Jesus Christ. He died on the cross, he defeated death, he rose again, and because of all that, we belong to him. Sin is defeated. That's what makes us conquerors. Now, after saying all that, Paul's gonna, he's going to finish this chapter with something that's very, very cool. In Romans chapter 8, it's just one of these chapters where I think Paul had, in my view, he probably had a, he had a little checklist. I'm going to cover this, this, and this, and this is going to be the clincher, right? And that's what he's doing, and I love this. Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? Nailed it. Now here in these two verses, Paul, he's actually making two points. Right? And we need to remember Paul was persecuted, he was harassed, and ultimately he paid with his life for his beliefs in Jesus Christ. So I want to keep that in mind. Number one, Paul is telling us he's absolutely, completely convinced, even willing to give his life, of something that he knows is completely true. It's not something, it's his opinion. It's not his wants or his hopes. He's convinced of something and it's completely serious. He's convinced that the whole host of things he listed off cannot separate us from Jesus Christ. And those are big things. Life, death, angels, demons, the past, the present, anything in the universe that's created, nothing can separate us from Jesus Christ. This is the reason Paul became an evangelist. This is the reason he wrote most of the New Testament, right there. This is big stuff. Once he came to believe in Jesus Christ, that's fabulous. He was saved, right? But eventually he gets to the point where, like, wait, now what do I do? Now I have to do something. And then he realized all this stuff, and he says, now I have to go out. I have to go. For the rest of my life, I'm never going to stop sharing this message about Jesus Christ. And the same is true for this church. We have to share about Jesus Christ to anybody who will listen. We believe in Jesus. We are saved by him. Nothing can change that. So tonight, if you would like to feel the way Paul was, if you'd like to have Jesus Christ in your life, we're going to give you that opportunity. If you want to know where you're going to spend heaven, we're going to give you that opportunity. We're going to help you ask him into your heart. What we're going to do is we're going to say a prayer. And all you have to do is repeat the words right after me. But if you've already done that, but now you're thinking about taking those next steps, like Paul, to step out in faith, to do amazing things, we're going to pray for that as well. And as always, we're going to pray for God to use this church and this community. Okay, Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. 
and I believe that you raised him from the dead. Today I ask Jesus Christ to come into my life. I ask him to make me new. I ask him to forgive me, to save me, to guide my steps for the rest of my life. Father, today we, as a church, we pray for strength to endure all trials. May everything we go through, good and bad, may it strengthen our faith, our resolve, and may we lean on you more. Father, today we recommit ourselves to you. Many times in our lives we get pulled away, we, get fall, we fall out of sync, but tonight we make the choice to recommit to you. It's our choice. We choose you. Father, we also pray for all people to come to know you and to place your tr- their trust in you. It's only through you and the saving grace of your Son that we even have hope and that we're saved. Father, we pray that as our faith grows, in whatever way you see fit, as our, as our faith grows, you will use each one of us. Help us to step out of our comfort zone, to talk to people we've not talked before, to be the best example of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can. Use us to expand your kingdom. Father, we thank you for the life that you've given each one of us. We thank you for the church. And most of all, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. In his name, we ask all these things. And all God's people said, amen.